This episode is brought to you by Deadwood on HBO. The film was hailed by critics as poignant and masterful and a brilliant final chapter. For your Emmy consideration in outstanding television movies and all other categories, visit hbo.com FYC for more on Deadwood. When David Milch's award-winning HBO series Deadwood went off the air in 2006, legions of fans were devastated. For anyone who loved westerns, Deadwood redefined the genre, up there with Sergio Leone's spaghetti westerns from the 1960s and Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch. The story about the godless and lawless town was in great need of a conclusion, and today on Crew Call, director Daniel Minahan talks about resurrecting the characters and the famed South Dakota mining town 13 years later in HBO's Deadwood, the movie. Last year, Minahan shared a primetime Emmy win in the limited series category for FX's American Crime Story, The Assassination of Gianni Versace. He joins us today on Crew Call. I watched this for the first time last night. And let me tell so I was very, um, I held back because it's, it's like Star Wars to me. And I know it's like Star Wars to a lot of people. That's what Deadwood is. Deadwood is a religion. And I held back and held back and it was awesome. It was so great, so spitfire, so um, it, it brought you immediately back to um, everything that was so awesome about the show. And, um, and spitfire is the word that I have because it was, and, and then some of the quotes, I was writing down quotes, they're like, they're like rules of thumb as far as philosophies in life, like, um, like the doc says, hold on one second. The doctor said, doc says, all bleeding stops eventually, and then and then Swearingen says, what else is gravy? This is like these are words to live by. Um, <laughs> time time ain't touch that. But um, here's the first thing. I, I'm curious about where where was the when you began? Tell me about. Tell me about where the script was, because here's when I here's some of the things I know. I had met with David after it went off, and I know that he said he couldn't do anything with it because of the the studios at the time, HBO and Paramount. And he says there was one indie guy that came and threw money at him and said that's how passionate people were about seeing a movie. And he was in a position at that time where he could not do anything. He could do other things for HBO, but at that point in time, they couldn't really move forward on. This is like going back like 2008, I want to say. But I know that there was talk of, and again, this is the history. There was talk of maybe playing up the pox, the pox outbreak, and the fire. And then there was this thing about Swearingen, if I'm correct. Um, and I know he, he has a, um, I don't want to spoil anything, but this is very much his story, this, this movie. Um, but there was, there was this image of Swearingen flees the town on a barge. And, um, but none of that, when, uh, tell me about like where, where, when you boarded, when you boarded, tell me about boarding it as director and, and where the project was. <clears throat> When I came on board, it was pretty far along. We were, I came on in July and we started shooting in the end of October, beginning of November. So it was pretty far along. We did a lot of shaping of the script with David and Regina Corrado, 
but uh, it was pretty much figured out, and I felt like they had really cracked it. Like it had like a, a kind of relevance that uh, really surprised me, story-wise. For the last 10 years, my agent would slip me Deadwood scripts. Um, I probably read the first two. Maybe the first one was around 2008, when you're, what you were describing. I maybe read the first two, and then it just seemed like it was never going to happen. Um, but uh, when Carolyn Strauss, the producer, called me and asked me if I would like to come on board, you know, it was like a, it was like one of those pinch me moments. Like it was pretty surprising and great that it finally had legs and was going. And then tell tell us about the other. You you had worked on you directed. Correct me if I'm wrong. Four other episodes. Yeah, I think five. I think over the three seasons, I directed five episodes. Um, I had uh, written an indie film. I had directed an indie film. I had done uh, maybe an episode of uh, Six Feet Under. And I went to uh, Deadwood to meet with David, you know, to see how we got along. And uh, Greg Feinberg, our producer, brought me onto the lot, walked me around, which was huge. I'd never really seen anything like it. Uh, he left me standing behind one of the stages, said, wait here, and I'll get David. He disappeared. David drove by on a, one of those carts, electric carts with uh, big steer horns on the front and kind of slowed down, said, you're Dan. And I said, oh, yeah, hi, David. And, and uh, we shook hands, and he just kind of kept going. And then I found out later that uh, I was going to be doing an episode. And um, I stayed on for three seasons and uh, got to do some remarkable stuff. So for me, it really was uh, one of my first opportunities to direct and work with a writer of that caliber. Now, um, and Mr. Milch is known, is known for this, and actors even get excited about this. Uh, rewriting on the set, rewriting on the fly, did that happen with the film in any scenes, or was it pretty much a locked, uh, pretty much a locked script? Unlike the series, which had a lot of uh, revisions, like constant revisions and a kind of a last minute pages that came in, which kind of made it really alive and exciting, the movie was very figured out. You know, it was pretty locked. There were days when we kind of adjusted things with David. There were days when we needed additional dialogue to cover a big set piece and you know, he would go off to his trailer and I would follow along and we'd sit there. He, you know, doesn't lay on the floor anymore. I think his back's much better. In the old days, he used to lay on the floor of the writer's room, dictate, you know, his writer's assistant would type. We'd all look at it on a big screen. It would come out the printer and everybody would run with the pages back to the set. This was a little bit different, but he was still doing that a bit. You know, he was, he, he's really in his, his element when he's writing. Um, as far as um, the set, Melody Ranch was most. I've been under the impression because I'll drive by there. I I live near there, obsessed with the place. Is is most of it still standing? Was the most of the Deadwood set still standing? For example, I know what's signature about the Deadwood set is Bullock's house at the end of the street, which was up on a rise. Was that? Did you have to rebuild, like, everything is, like, tell me about, was there a lot in storage? Were things, did things need to be rebuilt? Um, tell me about that. The interesting thing about Melody Ranch is it, 
it remained largely unchanged. The, the, the Bullock House had been removed. And one of the biggest things we needed to do was to rebuild that, besides rebuilding all of the major interior sets that were not contiguous to the street. But uh, one of the things that Maria Queso and I, the product, you know, she was the production designer on this and the production designer on the original series, one of the things we did was to try to find a way to show the passage of time through the set. So it was a lot of adding on to what was already there. In some instances, she added Brickface to it. After the fires in the uh, uh, late 19th century in Deadwood, they would rebuild things with stone and brick. So we tried to brickface a number of the, of the buildings to give it that look. Other things like the hotel, the Bullock Star, what was the Bullock Star hardware store became the Bullock Star Hotel. And that we had a, like a digital top up on the third floor of it is actually a, a, you know, an enhancement. Um, there was a whole section of town that was all stone and new, which we did in the completion of the set when you look down. It was, so that was a visual effect. So you would see sort of like tall brick and stone, you know, more um, governmental looking buildings down the way and, and warehouses and things like that. So we tried to expand it in a way. And one of the, the other big things we did was we tried to populate it in a different way. There were more women in town and more families. So we brought children in. And rather than a lot of uh, miners just marching around, coming home from the mines and starting their day and living in tents you know, on the street, we tried to make it more ordered. And we had delivery carts. And we had a bread delivery. And we had a milk delivery and an ice truck. and. You know, or, or a wagon, you know, that would go up and down. And, and that was the way we tried to give it life. So it was a little bit more ordered. What was key about the jumping ahead 10 years and the, the, uh, the, state, the state celebration? Was it the fact that technology was coming in, that Hearst's coming in and he's bringing the phone lines? Was that, like, I'm, I'm curious about everything jives with today. I mean, you can't help but think about Trump and equating him with Hearst. And we always knew Hearst was a bad guy, you know, uh, back in 2006. And it just screams now. It's just even louder, just the, you know, just everything we're going through. But tell me about that, the setup. The, what, was the, what was the gist of the setup? Well, the thing that appealed to me about the setup is the idea that this mining camp that was this little microcosm of America and kind of godless and lawless was now coming into legitimacy, you know, 10 years later. So they're going to become a part of the union, you know, with South Dakota, along with South Dakota. And the person that brings them legitimacy, unfortunately, is George Hearst, the corrupt magnate who owns all the mines in town and is a monopolist. And uh, so it's sort of a bittersweet uh, event for the people in the know. And then um, how? tell me about the actors getting back into character because nobody, there are no false bells in this. Everybody, I mean, it really, I was really impressed. And you gotta understand, like I said, it's very, very overly precious about the show. So if there was one inch off on the show, I would it would have screamed to me. And there never was that. They, they, they kind of stepped back into this. Because long st- um, I remember asking some of the actors on Mad Men. I said, oh, do you guys go off and get into character and, and then come back? 
they said, there's no time. There's absolute, our schedule is such that we need to just, you're lucky if you get one walkthrough and you need to show up, do your beat, do your character, and then you're done. There's no trying to figure it out. You know, there's no method actor prep in this. But tell me, tell, was that the case with this where the actors had to just show up and go? Or, I mean, it was very impressive how everyone just slipped into everything. I think the actors were very prepared. You know, they had, they were very prepared to re-enter the world. You know, they had been talking with David over the years. I know Dayton Callie was always very close with David and people would always check in with him. The interesting thing is once we started this, and it was full tilt, what I would do is invite the actors sort of one at a time, and I would schedule them during the day and walk them through the set again and talk a little about a bit about where they had been. And uh, they had thought a lot about it, you know, about because these are, for the most part, historical characters. So there was actually reference material about them. Um, yeah, there, were, there was nobody that we, that we had to kind of wrestle back into it. Everybody really wanted to be there. And as a result, they really prepared and thought it through. And anything they they didn't know, they would ask myself or they would ask David. So so they had thought a lot about where they'd been in the intervening 10 years. So that was exciting. One of the characters I found interesting, maybe you could talk about her, is the new one. She's the young girl who, who uh, arrives into town and then winds up being part of um, Swearingen's company of girls. At his at at, at his um, saloon, I initially thought, like I'm, you know, when I began watching the movie, I'm like, okay, she's related to someone. She's someone's daughter, left over, or but it never was that. She was just. Could, could you explain her character? I'm yeah. thinking she was just a young set of eyes on yeah. the town. I think the the Caroline character who arrives on the train with Sophia and Alma. She rhymes at the same time. Uh, comes to town. She's uh, chosen to single out Al Swearingen. You know, realizes that the that the power immediately that the center of power is right there. Goes to him and asks for a room in her place, basically for employment. And um, she's recognized right away as a young woman traveling alone by the two henchmen of Hearst. As a, you know, she's probably a sex worker. You know, so. I think the interesting thing about that character is, as I read the script for the first time, I thought, oh, she's got to be an agent of Hearst. Oh, I thought she's got to be a, a grifter, a Pinkerton like Sarah Paulson. She's maybe a grifter like, uh, you know, uh, Kristen Bell. And really, what's interesting about that is all the things that you project on her, uh, everyone in the, in the town projects a kind of, uh, they try to read her and they're attracted to her and they're fascinated by her. You know, Trixie reaches out to her and offers this kindness, you know. Uh, Al's obviously fascinated by her. Johnny's fascinated by her. You know, she's sort of a, like an innocent set of eyes that comes in to witness the whole thing. And she wants to be a part of it. She's really keen. In the old days, I think she probably would have ended up, you know, dead in, a, in an alleyway at the, end of the, at the end of an episode. But I think she is a kind of a, uh, she kind of brings hope to the camp. And a, and, a, and a new way of uh, being a young woman in the camp. This episode is brought to you by Deadwood on HBO. The film was hailed by critics as 
poignant and masterful, and a brilliant final chapter for your Emmy consideration in outstanding television movies and all other categories. Visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on Deadwood. One of the things <clears throat> that's interesting about Deadwood, and I was thinking, oh, maybe the movie will expand this. All of the action is contained, meaning it's contained, you know, when, when fierce things go down, it's contained <clears throat> on the street or the woods. And the vista, the vi like, horses galloping across the prairie uh was was there ever any talk of 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 expanding of exp you know just expanding the action or or just just it was always it was always about the town is that is that what it was we tried to open it up in certain ways like the way we enter the town the way we uh, get to the claim, you know, when, when they set the fire, at, when Bullock sets the fire at the claim, we tried to give a sense of the scope when Jane looks down at the town. You know, I think the, the possibility for doing that was there. And we had a lot of those shots, but really that's not in the DNA mm -hmm. of Deadwood. Deadwood's about community. It's about the intimacy and the interplay and the interdependence of these characters. And it's not about conquering the vast unknown. I used these big wide shots maybe almost as uh, chapter headings to just remind you of how isolated these people are. They're in the middle of nowhere, you know, but it's not about them being brave and, and uh, you know, conquering the frontier. It's something different. I'm. Correct me if I'm wrong. The reason why it was a movie and not another season was it just basically because of the logistics involved and bringing the cast back together. I can't really speak to that. I, I know that bringing the cast back, to, back, cast back together required like an alignment of the planets because since our series, these people's careers have just taken off and they all have big full careers in features and in their own series at this point. Um, would they be willing to do it? I've had so many of the actors say, you know, that they would love to continue on. It's, it's a really unique, beautiful experience working with Milch and, the, and the, the, the producers and the whole world that, you know, that they created there. So even with a certain major character having departed the 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 franchise now everyone would still you could still keep going well there's a debate as to whether or not that certain principal character really does die oh depends really? on who depends on who you oh, speak wow, to wow 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 I, I think it's that. inevitable that he would die but did he die on the spot i don't know oh very he good he or she sorry yeah very good <laughs> i like that that's yeah. great that's great. I also think there's a great opportunity there, and you can cut this, but I also think there's a great opportunity there that if Trixie took over the gem to see what that world would be like, turn it into a dance hall. Well, Calamity Jane needs her, her own series stat. <laughs> yeah, Robin uh, There's so many rich characters that could be, I mean, spun off, but again, it, it's all up It's all up to, to Mr. Melch if that'll happen. Yeah. Um, uh, what, how many, how many did you shoot for, how long was the shoot? Shoot was 30, 33 or 34 days. 
I think there was a day that we did outside of it when we shot Calamity Jane out in the forest approaching town. And everything in San, I mean, at, when you weren't at Melody Ranch, were you elsewhere in Santa Clarita? No, we, we shot on Melody Ranch for all of the, the back lot, the, the streets the, and the uh, stages. And then we shot Calamity Jane's arrival in the Los Angeles forest. We shot the uh, claim, Charlie Utter and Hearst's abutting claims uh, further north in one of the only kind of running streams we could find. Interestingly, it's the same location we used when uh, Alma's husband, Garrett, had the uh, I was going to say, it looked claim. very familiar. Yeah. And it would have actually been, Hearst ended up buying that claim. So the fact that Charlie Utter bought, had bought property on the opposite side of it wasn't out of the question. You know, we really uh, thought it through. I had forgot because I always thought Hearst was um, a made-up – his presence at the camp was kind of a fabricated thing, but it wasn't. He really had – he I was reading up. He had serious claims there. In fact, the I was reading the the mine that he had there went on the, the went on the exchange went on the the public exchange and then i think was in operation even into the new millennium as far as being traded really yeah um but did did like talking about the historical part did he in fact go back there when when um when there had been statehood and and start putting in the telephone poles was he that i believe was a bit of a uh, dramatic license yeah that 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 David took to tell that story. You know, it's a great, it's a, also a great ending because even though our, our little community of Deadwood prevails, you know that in the end, George Hurst won. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, um, the other interesting thing, this has nothing to do with the movie, but it's just really fascinating just how, how David has built this. I'll never forget, and I don't know if it was, it might have been season two, I think it might have been season two, but you know, after each show, back when I was working at Variety, you know, it was a total water cooler moment. You know, there'd be a huddle of us and we deconstruct it. And one of the interesting things was, very late in the series, uh, Alma met Swearingen, and someone had pointed that. It was just very fascinating because. You would you would have thought that they knew each he knew of her and looked at her they knew of each other but they had never sat down I I want to say till sometime in season two and it was a very civil meeting and it was it was a business it was a business transaction but that was just a, another brilliance of Milch of how he just builds out stories and characters and well their lives people. overlapped I mean I think the thing that that Alma never knew was that. Um, you know, her, her husband was murdered. Yeah, as a you know, under Swearingen's orders. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing that came up when uh, when we were shooting the auction scene that was so interesting is that you know people kept saying this is a love scene between Bullock and Alma, you know, because they kind of joined forces to defeat Hearst. But really, when we started to play it, and I was talking to Molly Parker about it. I said, I said, I don't see this as a love scene. And she said, I don't either. She said, I'm avenging my husband. Oh, that's wild. You know, after, that's great. After, you know, Ellsworth, you know, was murdered. Yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, which I thought was really cool. Now, one last thing, going back to the set. 
you had to re like Bullock's house. You had to rebuild it from scratch. Were 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 pieces of the set available at Melody? No, Bullock's house was built rebuilt entirely. Wow. Yeah. Also, the gem set, which was a remarkable thing. Maria, our production designer, had uh, no way to recover the plans for the for the set. Wow. So it was through watching the series and then pacing it out and and uh, blocking it that she was able to recreate every spindle of wood in that, that place. That is fascinating. Yeah, she really, really thought it through. We needed more space because we had so many scenes that were set in there. We didn't want it to feel too small. Yeah. So she decided that uh, Swearingen would have bought the, the, uh, the telegraph office next door. And so that was Merrick's printing press and the telegraph office. And they knocked the walls down, and then we had like a, a whole, Wild. you know, uh, a whole other half a set to work in, which was fantastic. When when I first went on the set, it reminded me of I, I thought to myself, if I could go on the set of James Cameron's Titanic, this is what it would have felt like, because everything, like it's not just face value. There's the circular windows, the that 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 1800s look of the windows. There's the smell of sawdust. The detail is just really dense there. I mean, there's probably things in drawers just yeah. to make it all method. Yeah, um, the sets are the sets are all fully realized. the The experience of going there is really immersive for the actors because you're walking through the mud, you're smelling horseshit, you're, you know, everywhere you look, everything's fully resolved, and you literally can't open the drawers. And the art department has filled them in with, you know, with props and things that were clothing that would have been there. They really think everything through. It kind of came out of our campus, uh, the kind of campus that we had when we did the original series where we all had to be ready for anything at any time. I remember one day uh, getting ready to go home. And someone called me back from my car and handed me a, a you know, stack of papers and said, Okay, tomorrow we're shooting this, and it was a scene where uh, Kristen Bell and her brother were going to steal all this money. They were going to season one. Yeah, they were going to run up the stairs, past Tolliver, climb down the the you know the rail of the of the balcony, jump onto horses, get pulled off the horses, get pulled back inside, get dragged upstairs, and then get beaten to death, and. That was what we got. <laughs> what we got at you know eight o'clock at night, and we were shooting the next morning, and uh, we just had to be ready for anything. So it's you know I stayed there pretty late that night, and you know with all the, with all the lights on and flashlights, and tried to plot it out. And then the next morning, the same. I would have stayed there if they would have let me, but uh, you know that was the kind of it was it was very challenging and very alive, and I think that's what really bonded everybody. David's style of working always kept you on your toes and always uh, challenged you to do things in a way that you hadn't quite thought of doing them before, which was really, really beautiful. So you brought this book with you today. Um, tell, us, tell us about this. Um, I just wanted to share the, uh, a bit of a behind-the-scenes kind of a creative process of what it was like working with David on the movie. Each day, David would gather his thoughts in the car on the way up to Melody Ranch, type them up, 
they'd print it out when he got to set and everybody would gather around before he rehearsed a scene and he would read these to us and I I used to he would hand them off to me at the end of a you know at the end of the session and uh, I kept a lot of them and this is uh, one that I thought was particularly poignant this is one we shot on the 14th day of shooting in November and it was when we were shooting the scene of uh, the auction of Charlie Utter's land and what's happened or what's in play as the scene progresses we discover that the whole town is banded together to frustrate Hearst and try to keep him from getting this land so this is what David read to us at the top of the day. Day 14, November 5th. My mentor, Mr. Robert Penn Warren, took up an analysis of the work of Joseph Conrad, who was a great, great writer. There came a time in Conrad's career where he took a tremendous leap forward in the quality of his work, and Mr. Warren, in analyzing how it happened, said, Conrad had to learn to take the deepest risk, that of identity. It finally comes to just making those choices, decisions about what this character would do and wouldn't do, and adhering to what you've decided. Try to discover your sincerity in relation to the materials, then let them kiss your ass. You have to walk with your judgment. That is an edict to which I strive to adhere in my own work. You as actors have that same task in building and portraying your characters. And so too do we as human beings make choices, make decisions, discover sincerity, risk identity, and then let them kiss your ass. Welcome back to the settlement. Let's open the bidding. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. It was a beautiful way to start every day. And I chose this one because um, there's sort of a, uh, when you when you go to work with David Milch, you realize right away that it's this incredible mentorship. This is like a remarkable mind, a remarkable writer. But he is in a tradition of mentorship. His mentor, Robert Warren, Warren, Penn Warren, the famous critic, was a huge, and poet, was a huge influence on him. Now, whether anybody in the cast had read, you know, any of his literary, you know, Robert Penn Warren's literary criticism, of course, people knew who Conrad, you know, the writer was. But there's a kind of a sense of... Uh, you're in the presence of greatness, and you're in the presence of a tradition, like a literary tradition. It's not just a TV show or a movie. You know, this is someone with real chops. And everyone, each morning after these little inspirational readings, would go at the scene in a new way. Because, of course, everybody's prepared. I've prepared something that I think the scene is about, you know, Tim Oliphant has prepared what he feels the scene is about. Molly Parker's prepared what she thinks the scene is about. And then we come in, and David just kind of consolidates the whole thing. And I thought it was really beautiful, you know, this one in particular, because it is about a tradition of mentorship, but it's also about the idea of having a principle and standing by it, which I think is a big, a big part of what this movie is about. You know, I think it comes at a moment where people are kind of uh, disillusioned and, and, and dispirited, you know, and I think, you know, he's creating uh, a dramatic scenario where you show people who are standing up for what they believe in. And in this case, they're standing up against George Hurst, the monopolist. Um, can you share with us what you're directing next? Um, my goal for the fall of this year is to do a six-hour limited series uh, 
about the the career of Halston, the fashion designer. Oh, fascinating! Another huge cast. Uh, we have Ewan McGregor attached, and uh, yeah, hopefully, if everything goes as planned, I'll be shooting that this winter for for HBO. Uh, too soon to say. Got it. Got it. <laughs> I can talk about it because it's been leaked. So. Uh, yeah, so that's what I've been researching and preparing for now. Before before we go, tell us about tell us about uh, the hook for him. What's fascinating? The fascinating thing about the Halston story is that he was sort of the original influencer. He branded himself and his name and marketed it to huge success, which was also his downfall because he ended up losing the rights to his name and his identity. So it's a very topical, relevant story to tell today. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.